And what I mean by that is if you were in the first service, um, this message is going to tie in. We didn't coordinate intentionally. But if you if you believe that the world is destined to perish, then you have not understood the message of the scriptures. Many of us have grown up in churches that we would consider to be evangelical, that is, uh, churches that maintain it's important for you to have a personal relationship with God and that Bible reading and prayer and worship are important, uh, that, that it, it, it matters how we live our life as Christians in the workplace, in the family. I believe in the tenets of evangelicalism, and I strongly support them, but a, a major section in the evangelical church also believes that the earth is going to get darker and darker until the second coming of Christ, and that the Antichrist will one day be unveiled and he will take his, uh, you know, he'll establish a throne on the earth and lead all of the earth into deception, and then Jesus is going to come back and put fire and brimstone on everybody, and there's going to be like a small percentage of the earth that is saved at the end of the age. Doom and gloom, fire and brimstone, it's very scary at the end, is what a lot of people believe. And I would humbly submit to you that the kingdom of God, uh, the message of the kingdom of God is determined against that sort of hopelessness uh, and, and pessimistic theology. Now, that's a bold claim, but I believe that Jesus says it over and over and over again. And it's the interpretation of these uh, two passages in the light of each other, along with some other ideas, especially in the book of Revelation concerning the tree that is, that is in the New Jerusalem, which give me strong support or strong confidence in making this statement that God wants to save the world, not destroy the world. And because of that, um, I, I thought it helpful to cover these passages just because you and I, we experience extreme emotional distress from our day-to-day -day living. There are many things going on in the news that if you listen to CNN or Fox or, or social media, etc., you will be depressed. And I have to submit to you, just humbly, that maybe Fox News is not the voice of God. <laughs> maybe CNN knows that negative news sells maybe the newspapers understand what we buy because we're fear mongers. So let's look at these passages. I want to look at four things. Babylon's fall, as it's brought to us in the chapter uh, of Daniel 4. I want to look at Jesus Christ's sacrifice that he made for us, for you, for me, for the world. And I want to look at this idea of you and I seeking shade. This idea that day to day we experience uh, emotional distress, personal distress, unhappiness, depression maybe, and, and you and I need to seek shade from the right place. You do seek shade from somewhere. It's important where that is. And then finally, the end of the world. And that's a little bit uh, facetious. I don't mean the end of the world as in everything's going, but rather the purpose of the world. That is the end for which God created the earth. And because of that, uh, that idea that I, I want to promote, um, uh, I would ask you to listen today, both to the reading, which you've already heard, and to the, the, this message with poetic ears. And what I mean by that is the Bible uses language, it uses poetic language, symbolism, metaphor, to bring out a veiled meaning. At the end of Mark 4, 
which was our the end of our reading, he says, with it, it said in Mark, with many such parables, he being Jesus, spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But he, uh, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. It is your job as a Christian to seek out meaning in the scriptures as Jesus would explain it. And I believe Jesus would have drawn on Daniel 4 when he's explaining to his disciples what it means for the mustard seed to become the largest tree of the garden. So that's why I'm going to use Daniel 4 and Mark 4 together. So let's get started. Nebuchadnezzar, if you don't know who he is, he is the king over Babylon. He is the mightiest ruler at that point in history who was walking on the earth. If you're familiar with the book of Exodus, you may know of Pharaoh. Um, If you've ever been to a museum, maybe you've seen a mummy. These guys were the supreme ruler over all the earth. At this time in history, Babylon was the supreme empire. It was the only empire that was on the earth. At the time, its rule was unchallenged. And so Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and in this dream, he sees a tree. Now, this tree gives the understanding of this metaphor, of this symbol, of this spiritual dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar. And the reason we know it's God, because a holy one, it says, comes and gives instruction. Um, This dream is giving a direction, and, and it's indicating where Nebuchadnezzar is at this place in history. He and his empire are the tree that are set in the midst of the whole earth. Now, of course, if you think about the world as we know it today, it is a sphere. It's not flat. And so in the midst of the whole earth would not be visible from people on the other side of the earth. So it's clear that this is a spiritual and poetic, prophetic uh, dream. Nebuchadnezzar is symbolized by this tree. This tree symbolizes Nebuchadnezzar. And it says that the tree is beautiful and it has pleasant leaves, which provide shade for the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens. Where have you heard those phrases before? In the book of Genesis, when it describes the created order, God is, is bringing, a, a part, uh, bringing upon the earth his creation. And he uses those terms, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens. And so here, God is saying about this tree, this tree is a totalizing force in the earth. It is the empire giving shade to all the nations. The birds of the the heavens and the beasts of the field, that term always is used in scripture to describe the nations of men. You can think of it if you want in kind of a Lord of the Rings uh, ideology, if you want. The nations of men were all captivated by the, the empire of Babylon. And this creation language speaks of all the nations of the earth. And this has happened before uh, Daniel 4. It's happened earlier in the Bible. Just as God had spoken to Pharaoh in Egypt before the famine, so that all the earth would, would come and buy grain from Joseph, so also this tree, it says in Daniel 4.22, in it was food for all. If you look at, um, we don't have time to cover all of Exodus today, but if you look at Exodus, God clearly gives a dream to Pharaoh, and through Joseph, God interprets the dream to Pharaoh. He, he gives understanding to Pharaoh so that Pharaoh can prepare beforehand to store up grain so that all of the earth would come and buy grain from Egypt. And Egypt is established as an economic empire because they knew about the famine beforehand. 
if you know about a famine beforehand, what can you do? You can plant more, you can, you can borrow money, hire laborers, buy fields, and invest because that grain is about to become gold, economically speaking. And so God establishes Egypt and gives them wisdom to see the famine coming, and they have food for all. Likewise, Nebuchadnezzar's tree in this symbol, in this dream, this tree, its fruit provides food for all the birds of the air. Now, at this point, we see, of course, that Babylon is an empire and God has established it. He's brought it up. God's coming, though, to humble Nebuchadnezzar and remove his glory. It says the leaves of the tree will be stripped off and all the fruit will be ruined. What happens if you take a piece of fruit off a tree before it's ripe? It's ruined. And here, God is coming and saying, strip off all the leaves and scatter the fruit. So God is coming to chop it down. In verse in in verse uh, twenty one here, um, Daniel actually comes and gives a warning to Nebuchadnezzar. And earlier, Daniel has told us in in the previous uh, chapters that God is the one who who establishes kings or or deposes them. In English Standard Version uses the word uh, removes, and I think the other translations use the word depose, because depose has a better idea. God is coming, and he has, he's not just arbitrarily doing this. God is actually angry with Nebuchadnezzar because of Nebuchadnezzar's pride and haughtiness of spirit. And so God has raised up Babylon so that all the earth would look to it in order to demonstrate that he is king over all the kings of the earth. God raises up Babylon and makes it a place where all the earth can see the coming humbling that he's going to bring on Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel, after interpreting, he warns Nebuchadnezzar to repent. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. What Daniel is doing to Nebuchadnezzar is he's giving him a faithful, true warning. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, unless you turn king, and and actually while he's interpreting the dream, he says, would that this dream be for your enemies. He, he is faithful to this king, even though this king's an unrighteous man. And he says to the king, turn from your sins, become humble, give, give to the poor, be merciful. Let your foot off the necks of the oppressed, if you will. And Nebuchadnezzar hears this dream, he hears the interpretation, and has ample time to repent. God doesn't come in the next day and bring the destruction. He doesn't come in and chop down the tree, as it were, right after this prophecy. But actually, a year goes by. Nebuchadnezzar's warned beforehand that he's going to be driven from men, and he's going to go about the fields like a beast. Literally, I want you to imagine a a president or a king of the earth now getting on their hands and knees and running around fields eating grass, mushrooms, leaves, straw. That is what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. And so even though he's warned, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't repent and he doesn't humble himself and he gets so filled with pride that he's on his rooftop one day, and he looks out over the city. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, there's another time where someone's on a rooftop. It's it's David, um, and he does something really bad after being on his rooftop. Maybe, biblically speaking, we shouldn't get on roofs. Um, 
Daniel 4, 29 through 30. I'm, I'm totally kidding. Daniel, uh, David commits adultery after looking from his roof into one of the houses that are near his, his uh, palace. He sees a beautiful woman. Anyway, so don't get on roofs. Daniel 4, 29 through 30. At the end of 12 months, he had a year to meditate on this. Alternatively, he had a year to think the Lord's judgment is slow in coming. The dream must have been a fluke. Daniel doesn't know what he's talking about. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is this not the great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? You can imagine the pride that is filled uh, that is that has filled Nebuchadnezzar's heart at this point. He's surveying this great city Babylon, which probably partially existed before he came around. And he says over the city, is this not the great Babylon, which I have built with my hands? Now, at this point, there is a great judgment that comes against Nebuchadnezzar. It says, verse 31, in verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell, a, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time, that is seven years, shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Now, earlier in the chapter, um, it says that... Uh, when Daniel's interpreting, he says that uh, this is done so that you would know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over the kingdom of men the lowliest of men. That is the humblest, the most humble, the most lowly. And so here, Nebuchadnezzar is, the judgment that comes against Nebuchadnezzar is not arbitrary, it's right, it's accurate. God comes in and humbles Nebuchadnezzar, and he places upon Nebuchadnezzar a ring of iron. What happens after the tree is chopped down? It's uh, around the tree is placed a ring of iron. Why would you do that? You would do that to prevent the tree from coming back to life and to, to grow up again until such a time as you removed the ring. Um, if you chop down a tree how many of you have ever chopped a tree down in your yard hoping that you'd kill it? Well, next year, let me tell you, it's back. So, so God in this dream says, chop down the tree and place a ring around it. This ring is symbolic, of course, of God's rule over Nebuchadnezzar. So God comes and the, the tree is chopped down and Nebuchadnezzar goes around like an ox. Again, get that in your mind for a second. You and I, we speak, we, we go through our, our day, we decide either business matters or fi family matters. We have reasoning uh, functions, capabilities. And what happens to Nebuchadnezzar is that the mind of a man is taken from him and he's given the thoughts, the desires of an ox. He, he wants to go around and eat grass from the field. And so the one who exalted himself above the heavens, if you will, that is, Nebuchadnezzar becomes the one who is lowly and made like a beast. This is a terrible judgment, and God does it. This account joins the testimony of the rest of the Hebrew scriptures in saying with one voice that at any point when you establish a, a fallen man as king, he becomes a tyrant. That is the point of the books of 1st, 2nd 
Kings, First, Second Chronicles, the point of those books is that every king, which which has either been established over Israel or the other nations of the earth, always becomes filled with pride and is a tyrant. And so because God wishes to expand, establish his true king, that is Jesus Christ, he comes and removes the bad kings. Jesus Christ teaches, of course, concerning his kingdom. Now, when Jesus comes on the scene, uh, this is, you know, hundreds and almost a thousand years after Nebuchadnezzar, um, Jesus Christ comes on the scene and he establishes a teaching uh, uh, ministry throughout all of Israel. He, he brings together some disciples with him. And he set, it says in Mark 4, in our reading today, that he speaks in parables. Now, those parables have been written down by his apostles, and they've been given to us, and we are to make use of the rest of the scriptures in attempting to understand them rightly. And so when we hear that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of the seeds, we're presented with a challenge. What is Jesus actually saying? I don't think that he's telling us to go get mustard seeds and put them in our backyards, although I would I don't really like mustard, but I'd be fine with putting anything in my backyard, celery, mustard, you know, tomatoes, etc. But he's not obviously saying that you should go buy mustard seeds. He's obviously not saying that you should go and put your trust in agriculture. He's using this as a metaphor. It's plain. It would be absurd to see it as anything other than a metaphor and a word picture, right? It would be absurd if Christianity was all about gathering mustard seeds and actually going fishing for real fish, not human fish, uh, metaphorical fish. So Jesus Christ he has this teaching concerning the kingdom, which is coming into the earth, and he compares it to a mustard seed. This seed, if you don't know what a mustard seed, it's small. If you've ever seen an avocado it's got a really big seed. If you open up an avocado, in the center is a pit, and it's actually a little bit bigger than a golf ball. If you've ever opened up a mango, the mango pit is actually, it's really big. When you buy a mango, you, you, you mostly get a little bit of fruit outside of a, a big giant pit. But the mustard seed is on the opposite end of the spectrum. If you were walking around in gravel or in a, in a kind of a rocky area and you dropped a mustard seed, you'd have no hope of finding it. It would surely fall between some cracks and it would just, you'd lose it. And so when Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed and emphasizes that it's small, he's saying that the kingdom of God, what God is doing on the earth is insignificant in the eyes of man. It's easy to miss. It's not obvious. To the natural mind then, Jesus Christ's death by which he was sown into the ground was totally insignificant. It doesn't make any sense, Christianity uh, speaking, uh, Christ, uh, in terms of understanding what the claims of Christianity are, it doesn't make any sense to the natural mind why some Jew who died 2,000 years ago should have any bearing on my life or your life. It does not make sense to the natural mind that Jesus Christ going to the cross takes our sins upon himself, and that by going into the ground three days later, rising from the ground, uh, he promises us new life. That claim is completely meaningless to the natural mind. To the mind that is set on natural things, there is no logical reason that that should be the case. For example, if another person dies, their death 
even if they stay dead, uh, has no bearing necessarily on someone half away, uh, half a world away, uh, multiple millennia away. It makes no sense to the natural mind that a mustard seed would become the largest of all the garden plants. And yet this is what God is doing. To the spiritual mind, of course, to the mind that is given grace from God, the hearing of the gospel, that is the declaration that Jesus Christ went to the cross for your sins so that you could be put right with God, so that the offenses with which you've raised up your fist towards the heavens and been like Nebuchadnezzar, that those could be removed through the lowliest and humblest act of all humanity, of all human history, that doesn't make any sense to the natural mind, but that is sweet, savory goodness to the spiritual mind. It does not make any sense that Jesus Christ's death should have any repercussions or impact on yours, if you just think about it like a natural man. And indeed, without grace from God, we would never see Jesus' sacrifice by which he is the mustard seed, which is sown into the ground and is becoming the largest of all the garden plants. Without aid from the Holy Spirit, we would never understand how that could be the case. By his resurrection, he, Jesus Christ, has borne much fruit. Of course, in John 12, Jesus says of himself, and, and this is how we know the interpretation is correct, that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it cannot bear much fruit. But if it dies, then it does bear much fruit. Jesus Christ has borne much fruit. And because of this, he's established his church to be a refuge for all the nations of the earth to come and to find rest underneath his branches. And so, because, because he uses this language, he uses the exact same language, the exact same language as the dream which came to Daniel, we know that Jesus Christ is speaking about a kingdom that he is establishing on the earth. We, of course, are, this is all very nice if we're talking about an abstract human history, but we, of course, as I said earlier, we find ourselves trapped in the midst of this scenario. There are many shade trees in the earth to come and rest under. Now, I'm not talking about a maple or an oak. I'm talking about spiritual metaphorical trees. I'm talking about the fact that you and I, day to day, we go through life and are downtrodden often by various things that happen, whether it's family life, school life, church life, our work, our, our job, our business, whatever we're doing. And those, those daily pressures which we experience are like the sun which beats down upon us in its strength in the midst of the day. And you and I are faced with a question, where will we go to find shade? Whose tree do we rest under? Beyond the areas of life that you're directly personally responsible, you hear of all these different political, sociological, economical things, right? What it, what's been happening recently in our country, there was some crazy thing that happened down in Memphis where a bunch of people formed a mob and, you know, just violently attacked other, uh, other human beings for no cause. Over in the Middle East, ISIS is running wild. People are afraid. I, I've literally gotten multiple prophetic uh, ministries in the states who have been sending me emails about, you know, ISIS is coming, woe is us. Uh, I don't think that ISIS is a good thing. I'm not saying that they're a good thing, but I don't think Jesus Christ was caught off guard when they showed up on the scene. What I'm saying to you is you face 
through the news media, through your own personal life and stress, you face the temptation of finding the wrong shade tree. We become anxious, depressed, fearful, maybe even a little despondent. That is, things are so bad, they're going to keep getting bad, it just seems to get worse throughout my life, right? The, the, the despondency which can set in is a major real temptation for the Christian in our culture today. And every single day, you're presented with the choice, where will you seek shade? Now, it is important, of course, to know that Jesus Christ offers you shade. But unless you come to truly believe and find rest under the one who gave himself for you, who took all of the metaphorical heat, as it were, on your behalf, you will never find lasting, truly regenerating shade. The temptation, of course, is to appease the flesh rather than kill it. Our souls are hungry, and, and so we go and we chase after illicit things. We chase after things that are uh, passing pleasures of sin. You, in your own life, you know what you run to. Uh, sometimes you don't know, but most of the time you know what is that thing that you use to be that pressure relief valve on your emotional stress or the, the pains of your life. You can do it with anxiety, that is, uh, you know, getting really anxious, getting really worried, losing sleep, vegging out, you know, binge watching TV for 20 hours at a time. Uh, fantasies, that is, you, you know, you either you daydream about that day where you'll make it or you daydream about that day will, where you'll really tell off that brother and, and he'll finally feel the weight of, of your, you, we do this, we engage in these practices. Escapes, procrastination, pornography, just outright laziness. These are things that real people use to be pressure relief valves on stress. This is a temptation that you face. And so these metaphors of shade trees and where we find rest, they're not just geopolitical, redemptive history ideas. They are that, but they have practical applications. Where do you look for your shade? We often fall in the temptation of serving sloth instead of seeking out recreation. What is sloth? Sloth is laziness. It's a apathy with your spiritual condition in which you basically come to believe that you're fine, that you don't need to seek God, that it doesn't matter if you quickly obey him. It was recognized through the church uh, for, for the last 2,000 years as being one of the, the mighty sins. They call them the the seven deadly sins. It's one of the most important because it's a state of heart. It's a state of mind. And engaging in that style of thinking, that style of living, uh, it it's deadly because it prevents you from doing the things that need to that you need to do to get out of it. It's like tar. Uh, you know, if you ever get caught in a tar patch, the more you struggle in that tar pit patch, the more you sink. And so sloth engaging in these kind of pressure relief valves, the ungodly shade trees, if you will, it, it presents a, a dire condition in the heart of a believer. So my, my main claim to you today is that you will never find true and lasting shade until you come to rest under the one who took all the heat for you. That is, Jesus Christ, by going to the cross, endured the punishment that you deserved rightly and he endured it in such a way that you could not have been able to endure it. 
It killed him, but then he also defeated death on your behalf, which you cannot defeat on your own. And so likewise, Jesus then raises from the, the, the grave and establishes his people on the earth to provide for you through his word, through his spirit, through his church, to provide for you a means of rest in the midst of your day. In dying in your place, Jesus has gone before you as to be a comfort to you in the moment. He can sympathize with your need to release that stress, release that pressure, to find shade in the midst of the day. And Christianity, therefore, it doesn't offer just personal hope alone, but also hope for the whole world. I, If you ask me what eschatological perspective I hold, I am what is known as a post-millennial. What that means is I believe that over the years, Jesus Christ will progressively, through his church, conquer the hearts of men on a mission of mercy, giving them grace instead of the sword, and that throughout all of human history, the light will shine brighter and brighter until the full day. I believe that with all my heart, and I wasn't always there. I used to believe, uh, although lightly, I used to believe that things were going to get bad and that everything was going to go to hell metaphorically speaking, Jesus would return and rescue his bride. But I believe that Jesus is glorifying his bride and bringing about glory on the earth through the establishment of his kingdom. And the reason I believe that is because of his scriptures, namely these two stories, these two historical authentic narratives, which present the kingdom of God as being the mustard seed, which becomes the largest of all the plants in the garden. Now, Jesus' identification of this small mustard seed becoming the largest of all the plants in the garden is a deliberate use of Isaiah's prophetic language that Isaiah uses to describe the end of the age. And in this, uh, this wasn't part of a reading, we're about to read it now. Jesus uses the phrase that it will be the largest of all the garden plants, connecting his kingdom with the thing that is larger than anything else, And I believe, I'm convinced, that Jesus is directly referencing a concept from Isaiah that talks about the end of human, uh, that is the end of of this age, this uh, pre-full manifestation of the kingdom. Isaiah gives us this oracle in Isaiah 2 concerning the latter days, which we are now in, according to 1 Peter, uh, uh, concerning God's involvement with all the nations of the earth. It says in Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. You remember that the mustard seed is going to be the tallest, the largest of all the garden plants and shall be lifted up among above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide uh, decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's my belief that Isaiah is talking about the final uh, hours, final uh, decades, years, millennia, if you will, of human history. And he's saying that it's going to come about in the latter days that the house of the Lord will be established as the chief among all the other mountains. 
That is, Jesus Christ's kingdom, his representative government on the earth, his house, is going, which First Peter says we're being built into a temple. Um, his temple is going to be the chief among all the other temples in the earth. Now, I believe that if you look at the last 2,000 years of human history, it is undeniable that Christianity has gone from nothing, not at all on the radar, historically speaking, to one of the major religions in the earth and likewise sociological impacting uh, elements that is Christianity has defined all of human history since Jesus Christ has come on the scene. They rescued Rome out of, out of Rome's societal collapse. They, they brought it up from the ashes, if you will. And they, uh, the Christians throughout the centuries have occasionally, time and again, done bad things. We talk about the Crusades. We talk about the weird stuff that happened in the Middle Ages. Granted, all of that is, is sin. All of that's bad. I don't, I'm not saying that Christianity for the last 2,000 years has been right. Uh, I'm saying that Christians have been the driving force of progress against the evils of sickness and societal sins, that through Christianity we've established an ethical system of society mainly that is equitable, whereas uh, man has been historically extremely uh, filled with animosity towards his fellow man, and that it is the only hope for the world. That there is no other philosophical or religious framework by which man can flourish. As I said last week, Christianity is the only system or philosophy or, or ideology that provides for true human flourishing because it's the only system that allows man or, or commands man to sacrifice for his fellow man. All other religious systems and philosophies can only say man should tolerate his other man. But Christianity calls you to come and to die for your fellow man. And so Jesus Christ, in identifying his mustard seed, which it becomes the largest of all the plants in the garden, he is co-opting and using and, and fulfilling the language of Isaiah, who says the mountain of the house of the Lord will be the largest of all the mountains. And so this is why I believe that Christianity will become more glorious on the earth over time, and that the end of the world ends with a celebration, a marriage supper of the Lamb, not the systematic destruction of all those who haven't bowed the knee to, to Jesus Christ. Now, I don't mean that every person on the earth will be saved. No post-millennials actually believe that. But they do believe that the earth will be progressively more as God has intended it to be, and that humanity will welcome back Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ isn't going to invade um, he's coming back to redeem his people, not to destroy all the apostates. This, of course, what Isaiah prophesied has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled. It started in the book of Acts when the law really did go forth from Zion. Before the book of Acts, um, we, we touched on this uh, pretty heavily in our series on Acts. Before the book of Acts, the law did not systematically go forth from Zion. It had occasionally, there had been synagogues throughout all of Greek Hellenism, but only in the book of Acts do you see intentional missionary activity right out of the heart of, of Jerusalem into the surrounding na uh, nations in which the law actually found a foothold in those societies. And so God has sent his apostles out from Jerusalem with his law word, and he is beginning to, through Jesus Christ, judge now between the nations. 
Despite what all the fear mongers say, wars going on on the earth today are not a sign of Jesus Christ's soon return. What I would submit to you as a valid sign of Jesus Christ's soon return is news headlines such as uh, just another, we wanted to just put the cap on another year, no major wars have broken out, nations are living in peace and harmony. Uh, that would be what I would take a sign of Jesus' soon return to be. Now, that sounds like foolishness if you are brainwashed in Jesus Christ is coming back, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. That It sounds like absolute, ridiculous, almost heretical idea that, that it would be a sign of God's progressive coming that wars would cease. But that's what you sing every year at Christmas. In his name, all oppression shall cease. That's what you sing every Christmas, and that's one of the major hymns and points of our season of Advent. We are not looking at Jesus Christ's return as a reset button on the failed experiment of Christianity in history. We are looking at Jesus Christ's return. That's what we celebrate through Advent as he is coming back and we can't wait for him to come. Not the earth is going to be destroyed. God has not, absolutely not, abandoned the earth up to futility for the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. If Isaiah is right, and I do believe Isaiah is right, and he says the glory of the earth will, uh, sorry, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Again, that's a simile. He uses the word as. And how does Isaiah believe the glory of the Lord will cover the earth? You have to answer that by saying, how does the water cover the sea? If you know what a sea is, the waters cover the sea totally. There is no place in a sea that is not covered by water. By its definition, seas are places covered by water. And so Isaiah sees the end of the world as being a time in which the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Not partly, not here, not there, but totally. So that is why I'm a post-millennial. That's why I have personal hope for the world. That's why, although I uh, have, you know, taken steps to be financially secure, uh, relationally secure, I don't worry that a flood of iniquity is just going to come in and wipe all of us out. I don't have any uh, room in my theology for Christianity being wiped off the face of this earth, though ISIS exists, though, you know, whatever. We could face terrible things, admittedly terribly th terrible things have happened, but I don't think that they are the defining word concerning Christianity and its global expanse. One day all the nations of the earth will bow their knee to Jesus Christ, and I don't think everyone's going to do it forced, forcedly. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, Lord, that you would give us personal hope. Lord, we ask that we would be a people who invest, who sow, who have children, we, we ask you, Lord, that you would fill us with the fullness of your gospel, that we would see Jesus Christ as king over the whole earth. Not only that, but that we would also be working to establish his reign in our hearts through your means of grace that you've given to your church. Lord, we also ask that you would cause us to be a people who are not waiting for your soon return in such a way as to not invest in the future. We ask that we would build with stone, not wood, hay, or straw. Lord, we, we do acknowledge that from time to time, we are tempted to seek shade 
not in your kingdom, not, not underneath you, but that we seek shade through the passing pleasures of sin. We use it like a release valve. And Lord, we are sorry for that. We do ask, Lord, that you would cause us to take our anxieties, whether they be personal or national or, or about the church or about our family, that you would cause us to take these anxieties to you and to let you provide shade for us. That you would give us rest. Lord, we do have weary souls often. God, we pray that you would fill us with all your fullness and that you would meet here with us in this meal that you've established. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.